0: show. Well, everybody's going to have to bear with me again today. I'm still having a problem with my voice, and so if I don't sound like myself, it's because of uh, whatever problem I have with my throat. Really hope it goes away. I'm leaving tomorrow morning for Orlando again for The Money Show. Hope to see a few of you there. But I really wanted to record a podcast because there's so much stuff going on that I just got to... You know opine about it and and hopefully everybody is following my advice uh to spread the word i did follow some of my social media and i'm seeing i'm picking up a lot more accounts youtube facebook uh, twitter more followers than normal or so that's great and we just got to continue to spread the word so that i can spread the word about what's really going on in the financial markets and in the u.s economy the volatility is really continuing. In fact, today I think at one point this morning the Dow was up close to 400 points. Ended up closing negative. Wasn't a big drop, about 20 points. But I think that's the biggest reversal of a gain to a loss in a little over two years. Uh, the broader market did worse. The S and P percentage wise was down quite a bit more. We dropped about 13 and a half points. The NASDAQ was down about 64 points. Of course, the biggest reversal, I'm not sure how long it's been since we've seen one like that, is the one we had yesterday. In fact, when I recorded my podcast on Monday, I thought that we'd have a big drop on Tuesday, but then I thought that we might also have a rally because, you know, it's reversal Tuesday, turnaround Tuesday. So I thought there'd be a good chance that we'd have a big drop in the morning and then we'd have some kind of rally. And that's exactly what we did, except we had an even bigger drop in the evening, right? On Monday night, looking at how U.S. stock futures were trading in Asia, the Dow futures were down the equivalent of about another 1,300 points. Now, by the time the New York markets opened, we had recouped almost all those losses. But if you look at the five days from the high, five trading days, the Dow futures lost about 13% of their value in five days. Now, that just shows you how quickly the market can go down. I mean, it could The next time it could lose even more, even faster. You don't know. That was a big move, but then we recovered. And I think we finished today with like a 500 point rally. So lots of volatility, and I will tell you something that when you have a trend, and then all of a sudden you see lots of volatility, generally that's a sign that the trend is changing. And the trend has been up, obviously. Stocks have been trending up for years and they've been trending up with minimal volatility. All of a sudden, you see massive volatility. Does that mean the trend is likely to continue? No. It's more likely a sign that the trend has come to an end. And now you're getting all this volatility as people are jockeying around for positions, right? People buying the dips. Now they're selling the rips. And so I think the close today is a very weak close. I mean, so we could start selling off again tonight. I mean, I'm recording this right after the close. So the futures really haven't done much. But we'll see what happens later tonight. But I think the market's closed In a very weak way and uh, there could be a lot more downside especially if you look at what's happening in the bond market which you have to look at because that is the dog that is wagging the stock market tail i believe at this point but yields on the bonds are now back to the highs in fact the yield on the 30 year is now the highest it's been all year it's higher than it was before the stock market had its little crash the yield is three spot 117 on the close. Now, the 10 year did not make a new high, but it is back up to, to the day it was on the high day before the stock markets tank. We closed at 2.844. Now, part of the catalyst for the dump in bonds today was the lousy reception the 10 year government bond auction had earlier today. You know, the government auctions off these bonds. They start with a two year, I think, and then they auction off five year, 10 year. 30 year And there are bidders there. And there weren't as many bidders as normal. And the way they were bidding, it was a very, very bad auction. Now, the crazy thing is to me, why would anybody bid on a 10-year treasury? I mean, I don't know. I mean, who, who the hell wants to loan money to the U.S. government in dollars for 10 years for 2.8 percent? I mean, the only thing dumber than that is loading the money for 30 years at 3 percent or 3.1 percent. Now, the 30-year auction, I think, is tomorrow. I think that'll be even worse. I I mentioned I thought a good trade was buying the 10-year and shorting the 30-year, right? Because you make that spread. I mean, why would anybody who wants to buy U.S. government bonds buy a 30-year when you can just buy a 10-year? I mean, the 30-year is 3.1, and the 10-year is 2.8. I mean, it's actually less than 30 basis points difference. I mean, for that extra yield, why do you want to take 20 more years of risk? I mean, let's say interest rates go back to 7%. For the 10-year to the 30-year. I mean, I think they're going a lot higher than that eventually. But let's just say they go to 7%. Why do you want to be stuck uh, clipping uh, 3% coupons, right, for 30 years, right? I'd rather have 2.8 for 10. Because then after my bond matures in 10 years, I can reinvest in the 7% paper. Why do I want to be stuck for another 20 years? In fact, how many people who are buying U.S. treasures today are even are even going to live? for 30 years. I mean, how many bond buyers got 30 or more years of living? I mean, most of these people buying bonds are pretty old. Now, obviously, there are some institutions, there are insurance companies and pensions that have some demand for this. But in reality, there, nobody should be buying these bonds. You know, one of these days, the Treasury is going to have a bond auction and no one's going to show up. I mean, no one other than the Federal Reserve. And that's when, you know, that's when it's too late to do anything, right? That's when everything collapses, when there's nobody who wants to buy government bonds. Now, nobody should want to buy government bonds. But for some crazy reason, people are still doing it. But eventually, they're going to stop. And you know, today, there were more reasons you know, because the budget deficits are exploding. The trade deficits are exploding. That is what is behind the backup in rates. And by the way, when the stock market started to crash over the last few days, that actually stopped bond prices from falling. People started to buy some bonds when they saw the stock market crashing and rates came down a little bit. Why does that happen? Well, because the idea is, oh, well, wait a minute, the stock market might be crashing. This could be a sign of recession, uh, a weak stock market. Maybe the Fed is going to call off some rate hikes. Right. So all of a sudden, the bearish case for bonds isn't as bearish anymore. And now people might actually be buying these. bonds. Oh, let's buy them as a safe haven because the stock market's crashing right and it's not because it's already gone down three or four or five percent they're afraid it could go down 10 or 20 percent. right so they start buying bonds but then what happens is bond prices start to rise and interest rates start to fall a bit and that takes some of the pressure off the stock market so now the stock market looks at the bond market and says, "Oh, the bond market is now going back up interest rates are going down i guess we dodged a bullet and now the stock market starts going back up again they're not crashing anymore but the minute stocks stop crashing well, now the bond market continues to plunge, and now we're at new lows for bonds, new highs in rates. Now the stock market's going to see that get spooked, start to crash, and then all of a sudden the bond market sees the stock market crashing, and now some buyers come into the bond market, and it's a dance that we keep on doing. But I think that stocks can keep moving lower, and yields can keep moving higher as the dance continues. But the way it's going to end is when the stock market tanks and the bond market tanks together, because eventually... If the stock market keeps crashing, which causes bonds to rise, which stops the stock market crash, and now it starts going up again, and then bonds start going down, pretty soon, you know, like Pavlov's dog, the bond market buyers are going to ignore the drop in the stock market. It's just say, like, you know what? Who cares about the stock market going down? Because if we buy bonds, the stock market will just stop falling. And then, because the stock market starts falling, you know, bonds are going to are going to fall again, and rates are going to go up. So eventually, the bond traders will just ignore the stock market. And they'll just keep selling bonds anyway. And then it will really crash. Then the stock market won't just start a crash. It will have a crash. And then maybe that will cause some buying to go into the bond market temporarily until people realize what that means, because that means the Fed's going to be stepping up and printing even more money, which destroys the value of bonds even more, because all the bonds are our future payments of dollars. They're IOU dollars in the future. And once people lose confidence in dollars uh, in the present... Then they even have less confidence of dollars in the future. But let me talk about uh, what's going on with the deficits, the twin deficits, both the the trade deficit and the budget deficit. So yesterday, while nobody was really paying attention uh, and everybody was looking at the you know the big rally in stocks, or they were relieved that the big sell-off from Monday night you know reversed, we announced the government announced the uh, December trade deficit. And the November trade deficit uh, was originally reported at 50.5 billion. And they revised that to 50.4 billion. So not quite as bad, right? But the consensus was that the trade deficit for December would widen to 51.9 billion. Big jump. Except it jumped all the way up to 53.1 billion. Huge increase in the trade deficit. That is going to knock quite a bit off of Q4 GDP. In fact, there's a good chance now that when they do the revisions to Q4 GDP, that the whole year of GDP growth, the first year where Trump was president, that the economy will have actually grown at a lower rate than the average of Obama's second term, which is amazing, considering how great everybody thinks the economy is doing now and how bad they think it was doing under Obama. The fact that it's actually doing worse now than it was under Obama. You know, we've already mentioned that job growth last year is is the weakest since 2010. And now we have the trade deficit. In Trump's first year in office, the trade deficit expanded by 12%. Remember, he said the trade deficit was huge, right? And now it's big league huge, right? It's gotten even worse under Trump. This trade deficit was the biggest trade deficit in one month in nine years. But what's more significant is if you look at if you take out oil because the last time the trade deficit was this bad I think it was 2008 and oil prices were near $150 a barrel and we were importing a lot of it so if you take out oil this is the biggest monthly trade deficit in the history of this country now it was the biggest trade deficit in the history of the country that is one of the reasons that we had the stock market crash in 1987 of course that deficit is tiny compared to the one we got now but the markets were much more in tune with trade deficits back then, uh, a bad trade deficit like this would have sent the dollar tanking, which is what should happen with a bigger than expected trade deficit except nobody cares. But I think the bond market does care. And I think this is part of the reason because these trade deficits need to be financed. And a lot of it is financed by selling bonds. And I want to actually take a little bit of time here in this podcast while I'm talking about trade deficits to debunk this myth. Because I read a lot online where people say, oh, trade deficits don't matter. Right. I mean, what's the difference? I mean, I have a trade deficit with Walmart or, you know, uh, New York and have a trade deficit with Connecticut. I mean, what difference does it make? Right. I mean, who cares? It makes a big difference. And it's surprising to me that sometimes there's a lot of, you know, otherwise smart people, as far as economics go, that still don't get why these trade deficits are so destructive. Now, in the short run, they can improve your life if you run a trade deficit, just like buying products on a credit card in the short run can improve your life because you, you buy stuff that you can't afford. But in the long run, you know, you can end up in a lot of debt and you can be in a lot of trouble. So there's a cost. There's a long-term cost uh, to just taking on a bunch of debt to have a good time now. And that's what the trade deficit is. We have a trade deficit, but we have a capital account surplus. Now, everybody says, well, see, that's good. We have a capital account surplus. See, that's not good. That's bad. Because what we're doing is we're selling off our assets. We're selling assets to consume, to buy stuff, right? And so we're going into debt. That is the problem. So when we buy products, we buy $50 billion worth of products in December that we didn't pay for with exports, right? I mean, we exported some stuff, but not enough stuff to cover what we imported. So there's a $50 billion gap. So what do our trading partners do with that $50 billion? Because they're not using it to buy our products. So they're going to use it to buy our assets, Now, that is not a good thing when you're selling off your assets. Now, some of the assets they buy could be bonds, right? They buy treasury bonds or they buy corporate bonds. Well, we got to pay interest on that debt, right? We got to send the dividend checks or interest checks to our foreign creditors. They can also buy stocks. They could buy U.S. stocks. They could buy up our companies. But now they get all the dividend income. It flows over there. They could buy up some property. They can buy real estate. Yeah, but now they're our landlords and now we're paying them rent. So our trading partners are accumulating income-producing assets. And what do we get? Depreciating stuff. We buy consumer goods. That is a bad deal. Now, in the short run, yeah, we have more fun buying all these trinkets that ultimately are worthless because we've used them up. But our trading partners get real assets. So they're accumulating assets. We're accumulating debt. When you accumulate debt, you're getting poorer. When you're accumulating assets, you're getting richer. Now, I know some people are going to say, look, there's a lot of rich people that have debt. Yeah, but they don't have credit card debt. No rich people have credit card debt. Poor people have credit card debt, right? Poor people borrow to consume, not rich people. Rich people borrow to invest in capital, to build businesses, to make investments that produce cash flow. That's a different story. If I can borrow money and invest it at a higher return, that's good debt. If I just borrow money to buy a big screen TV... Know, or to take a vacation, that's bad because after you borrow the money and spend it, there's nothing left to repay the debt. If I borrow money to buy an asset that generates cash flow, that's higher than the interest I'm paying on the debt, the asset is going to generate enough revenue to repay the debt and I'm going to be better off, right? But if you buy, if you borrow money to buy a consumer good, then you got to pay back the debt. You have no income generating asset and now you have to pay back the debt with interest. So you are going to get poorer, So we are getting poor. You know, when America first started out, right, when we, you know, we fought the Revolutionary War, we borrowed money from the French. We ended the war. America was in debt. We were a debtor nation. We were a debtor nation for a long time until we eventually became a creditor nation. And then we became the biggest creditor nation in the history of the world. And in fact, we were still the world's biggest creditor nation when Ronald Reagan was elected president. But we went from a creditor to a debtor while Reagan was in office, and today we are the world's biggest debtor nation. In fact, we owe more money than all the other debtor nations in the world combined. Now, what is better, right? Being the world's creditor, the world's biggest creditor, having the most assets, having the most stuff, right? When America was at its zenith of of power, we owned assets all over the world. The world had to pay us rent. They had to pay us interest. They had to pay us dividends. We had all the assets. We had all the wealth because we were running trade surpluses and we used our trade surpluses to buy up the world's assets. Now we run huge deficits and we borrow money from the rest of the world. And so now we're the biggest debtor. What is better, to be the richest person in the world or the poorest, right? We are not in better shape because we've run these deficits. It's a disaster. All these people that say these trade deficits don't matter, they're wrong. Trump was right to criticize these trade deficits, right? Where he's wrong is thinking, that we can change it by just having better negotiations. And also, you have to realize that in the short run, when you go from a trade deficit to a trade surplus, it's probably going to mean you're going to consume less. You're going to save more. You're going to invest more. And so your standard of living in the short run is going to go down. But that's good because in the long run, it'll go up, right? Because you're doing the right thing. It's the tortoise and the hare, right? The tortoise wins the race. The hare drops down from exhaustion right? So we want to save and produce and build and, and get rich. We don't want to indulge ourselves by borrowing and consume, but that is what we're doing. And so these trade deficits are getting bigger and they have to be financed, right? And so if we're having all these big trade deficits and we're sending our trading partners more dollars that they need to get rid of. Now, if they if they don't want them, let's say they don't want to invest them in the United States, then they're going to sell them. Right? Let's say, you know what? I don't want to buy U.S. Treasuries with these dollars. I don't want to buy U.S. stocks. I want to buy assets in some other country. They have to sell the dollars. Who's going to buy them? Right? That puts downward pressure on the dollar because these are unwanted dollars. Right? They don't need them to buy our stuff. If we had balanced trade, if we were sending uh, foreign consumers products to pay for the products they sent us, there would be no surplus dollars. But now they have $50 billion in surplus dollars. Why should they put them in Treasuries at such low yields? Right. So what are they going to do? Get rid of them, sell them. Right. So this is a big problem for the treasury, for the bond market. You know, one key difference that I need to point out between the money that America borrowed uh, as a young nation when we were initially a debtor and the money we're borrowing now, because I know a lot of times people who want to say, you know, running deficits doesn't matter or current account deficits. And they'll say, well, you know, America was running uh, current account deficits during the 19th century. And look how, you know, it didn't hurt. No, it didn't hurt because we were borrowing money to invest. We were using the money that we borrowed from the Europeans, principally, to invest in companies and plant and equipment and infrastructure. And it was because we used that borrowed money so wisely that we were able to generate the income necessary to pay off our foreign creditors. And as a result of that, we became the biggest creditor in the history of the world because we borrowed money to invest. We were not borrowing money to pay for trade deficits. We were not borrowing money to consume. You do not get rich borrowing money and then blowing it on consumer goods. So when people compare the fact that Americans are running deficits today and say, well, you know, we were running them back then, it is apples and oranges. We were borrowing to produce. We were borrowing to invest. Now we're just borrowing to have a fun, to, to consume, to buy stuff, to buy television sets, right? To buy cars, to buy washing machines, to buy computers, to buy cell phones. And these aren't computers that being used by businesses. These are laptops people are using, you know, to surf the internet, to check out porn, right? I mean, this is all consumer goods. We're not going to get rich going into debt. To blow our money on assets that don't generate wealth. So that is a big, big difference between what America did to get rich and what America is currently doing to become poor. But now let me get to the even bigger problem, which is the budget deficit. Oh, you know, before I even get to that, I wanted to talk about the surge in consumer credit because we got those numbers out today. And auto loans student loans and credit card debt all surged to an all-time record high now actual consumer credit came down because it was so big in november 31 billion dollar increase in november that the december growth was a big slowdown 18.4 billion so maybe you know everybody just you know that was everybody maxed out in november and now you know they're coming down but if you look at the current level of credit card, student loan, and auto, all three are at all-time record highs. Now, if the economy was in such great shape, why is everybody going deeper into debt? Usually a sign of wealth, of an improving financial condition, is you're able to pay down your debt. But no, Americans are taking on more debt. That is not a good sign. We're already drowning in debt, and now the water level is is even higher. And again, what does all this debt mean? It's an anchor on future consumption. How are we going to buy stuff in the future when we still haven't paid for the stuff that we bought in the past and we have to pay interest on all that stuff and obviously if you're in debt yourself you can't lend money to the u.s government you can't buy u.s treasuries if you're broke yourself and that is the problem that the u.s government has when it comes to taxation to try to repay the debt you can't get blood from a stone and when it comes to money right most u.s taxpayers are stones right? There's no blood there. Uh, and so all they can do is print money and just, you know, have massive inflation. But on the budget deficit, we got a deal today, a bipartisan deal between the Democrats and the Republicans. And I always have said that the worst thing that can happen in Washington is bipartisanship, because then then everybody gets screwed, right? You get the worst possible outcome when Congress works together. In fact, I remember when I ran for Senate, I told people I am not going to work with the Democrats. I am not going to compromise because we compromised our way into the mess that we're in. I said, I'm going to stand on principle and I am not going to compromise. I'm going to fight for my principles to win. And I'm going to try to convince the people who disagree with me that I'm right. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go there and compromise. But everybody likes to say, yes, yeah, so I'm going to work with the Democrats. So I'm going to I'm going to work with the Republicans. I'm going to reach across the aisle. Yeah, when they're reaching across the aisle, they're going to reach into your pockets because we get all the, the worst possible things. So this new bill that they just signed to avert a government shutdown and also increase the debt ceiling, I think. I don't know how much they're increasing it by. I haven't seen that. But they avert this government shutdown, which would be better than signing this bill. <clears throat> but they're voting to increase the deficit by an extra $400 billion in just the next two years, right? That's in addition to how much the tax cuts are going to raise the deficit during those two years. The deficit's now going to go up an extra $200 billion per year on average over the two years. You know, basically there was an $80 billion a year increase in military spending, I think about a $65 billion a year increase in social spending. And just because this is over two years, believe me, this is a new baseline. So this is going to continue. So it might as well be 10 years. That's $1.6 over 10 years increase in the deficit, $1.6 That's on top of the $1.5 lowball estimate, by the way, that we have from the tax cuts. So in the span of a month or so, Congress has now decided to increase the deficit by $3 trillion over the next 10 years. Actually, much more. Now there was also like eighty billion or one hundred twenty billion or something like that. I forget the number for disaster relief. Now that was just in one year, so it's not every year. But of course, there's disasters every year. So I mean, to say okay, we're just going to do that this year. We don't have to assume we're going to do it every year. Yeah, every year there's going to be some kind of disaster, and every year the government's going to appropriate money to uh, to pay for it. So the deficit, you might as well just assume that's going to go in every year too. You can tack another uh, almost trillion dollars. on on the pile. So all this debt has to be financed. Plus, we haven't even gotten infrastructure yet. They're still talking about a massive infrastructure bill. So we're going to have to borrow that too. So debt is going through the roof, right? We're going to be selling bonds like there's no tomorrow. The deficits are going to skyrocket to levels never before seen. And I, I pointed this out on my last podcast. The big difference is when we were running these trillion dollar a year deficits under Obama early on, the Fed was monetizing them. So it was financeable because the Fed was printing all this money and buying all these bonds. Now, not only is the Fed not doing that, but they're actually going to do the opposite. They're saying in addition to all the bonds the Treasury has to sell to fund these massive deficits, you also have to throw some more on the pile to repay us because we're not going to roll over the debt that we have right? So now, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, the, the Fed's not selling bonds. Technically, they're not selling bonds. They're forcing the Treasury to sell the bonds. But the result is that extra bonds need to be sold as a result of the Fed's balance sheet going down. So the effect on interest rates in the bond market is the same. The Fed might as well be selling, right? And so what's going to happen? So bond prices have to keep on falling. They have so far to fall, the only thing that stops them is the stock market crash. Because the stock market crash Changes the narrative. Oh, they're not going to raise rates. They're not going to shrink their balance sheet, right? So now the the bonds stop tanking. They go up a little bit. Now the stocks see the bond market. Oh, okay. I guess bond interest rates stop rising. So we can buy stocks again, again. And it's just going to be a self-perpetuating spiral. But it's going to end a disaster uh, for both stocks and bonds. And eventually for the dollar, that is the biggest disaster. Because when the Fed has to step up, and buy bonds because it's the only one dumb enough to do it. I guess they're not dumb enough because it's not their money. They create out of thin air, right? Real people, real buyers don't want to buy treasuries because they're going to lose their money. Now, foreign central banks can also create money out of thin air, but why would the ECB or the Bank of Japan want to take that bullet for us? I mean, what's the point? The only central bank that really has an incentive would be the Federal Reserve. But then again... Do they really want to destroy their own currency? Because ultimately, if the currency they're printing is worthless, then what good is it? Now, maybe they don't think that far in advance. All they can see is, oh my God, what's going to happen if we let interest rates skyrocket and we have a financial crisis? So they keep printing dollars. And then we have a dollar crisis. I got to um, also talk about the volatility in Bitcoin. Bitcoin, just like the stock market, is a risk asset. And it certainly is trading that way. So Bitcoin on Monday... Monday night or Tuesday morning, broke 6,000. It was in the 5,000s. It was a 70% drop in about, I don't know, six, seven weeks, 70% from the mid-December high of about 20,000. Obviously, that's not a safe haven. That's not a store of value. You drop 70% that quickly. How can you describe that as a safe haven or a store of value? It is a highly speculative asset. Now, as I am recording, we're back above 8,000. So we went below 6,000 and the next day we're back above 8,000. This is massive volatility. But the trend is still down as far as I'm concerned now. We are in a bear market in these cryptocurrencies. They are falling a slope of hope. I don't expect that we are going to go back up to the highs. Is it impossible? No. Yes, we could go back above 20,000. It is possible that the bull market is going. But to me, it's as likely, if not more so, that the bull market is over and the bear market has begun. What we haven't had yet is the crash. We haven't had the capitulation. The holders aren't folders yet, right? Everybody still is confident. They might be a little nervous because their paper wealth is not as high as it was. You know, I had a conversation with a client today who had sold a bunch of Bitcoin already, or not even Bitcoin, he's in different cryptocurrencies. But he was like, well, I wanted to sell more, but now, you know, it's down so much and I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for you know the, the, it to come back. And I said, look, don't make that mistake. Sell into these rallies, you don't have to sell at all, but sell something into the rally, because it may never come back. And a lot of people are going to get suckered into that situation where, okay, you know I'm down 60, 70 percent, I want to sell, but I can't sell down here. Let me let it get back to where it was, and then I'll sell. You know that is a trap that people can fall into, and then you stay in it until you have nothing left. right? you got to think that we may never get back up there again. But there is volatility. Sell some into the rally. If it rallies more, sell more. If it keeps rallying, keep selling, but at least that way you get out of something. Because what if it keeps dropping? What if it never rallies high enough? What if you're in, let's say, Bitcoin, and let's say you got in at a thousand, right, and it got to twenty thousand, and you didn't sell anything, right? Let's say you, you're in that and now it's at eight thousand, and you're thinking, well, I can't sell now. Maybe a little. Bit. All right, if it gets back up to fifteen thousand, I'll, I'll sell. Well, what if it, what if it only gets to fourteen thousand, and then it crashes to one thousand or five hundred? Just sell some. If it goes to 10,000, sell a little bit more. If it goes to 11,000, you know, so just sell. And then at some point, you might have to start, you know, selling lower, but you can sell rallies because there's going to be rallies until there's complete capitulation, until this thing completely collapses. That might not happen from, you know, 1,000 to 100. I don't know. But you've you, you got to you got to sell into the cryptocurrency rally. Now, gold, I know people are going to say, hey, Peter, gold gold's going down now. You know, gold was down, uh, I think, today yesterday because the market stopped crashing. I think what happens is people see the market crash and they buy some gold. And then when the market stops crashing, they sell the gold they bought. I mean, we never got a big rally in gold. And so that might have frustrated some of the people who bought it and then they dumped it. But, you know, gold's still around 1320. I mean, it's not like it's tanking. It just hasn't broken out. But I think it is going to break out because I think the stock market's going to keep falling. The bond market's going to keep falling. Yeah, there's going to be some rallies. But at some point, somebody is going to figure out that this is a big problem, that there is a lot of risk here, and they're going to buy gold. And when people think about the end game of this risk, right, they're going to realize that wait a minute, the Fed's going to have to call off the rate hikes. They're going to have to cut rates. They're going to have to launch a massive quantitative easing program. The dollar is going to get killed. Gold is going to take off. And so that is going to happen. Hey, and speaking about gold, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up, right? And a great gift for your significant other or, you know, for yourself is gold jewelry at Mene. Mene, M-E-N-E is the name of the company. It's an old term for money, goes way back. But Mene is owned by Gold Money. And what Mene does is they make Designer jewelry. They have Pablo Picasso's niece as one of their designers, and they have a line of products made out of pure gold, pure platinum. And you go to their site, Mene.com. Also, you can talk to your your salesman at at Shift Gold. Uh, We can sell that product there as well. But here is the deal with Mene Gold. And you can go online. In fact, if you have a gold money account, you can use some of your gold to buy the gold jewelry. But the deal is that when you go to a department store and you buy yourself some gold jewelry, Let's say you spend $1,000. Maybe there's $200 worth of gold in that that jewelry, right? You spend $1,000 for it. So you spend $800 for the design and the marketing and the markup and all that. And you you get $200 worth of gold. Well, that's not, I mean, gold's going to have to go up five times for you to break even, to melt that gold down for what you paid, right? Gold's got to go to like 6,500, right? If you buy a, a jewelry department store now, a gold chain, and gold's 1300 and you pay $1,000 for $200 worth of gold, gold's got to go up five-fold. You need $6,500 gold to break even. Now, you know, gold's probably going to 6500 but that's, you know, that's a crazy, you know, that's not a gold investment, right? But what Mene does it's the reverse. For $1,000, you're getting $800 worth of gold, right? You're paying $200 for the design. And so in that case, you just need a 25% move in gold. You get gold at $1,600, and now your gold necklace or whatever you bought is worth more to melt it down than what you paid for. So there you have an investment in gold, and you're getting some jewelry. Because if you think about it this way, I mean, it's obviously not the most economic way to buy $800 worth of gold, right? You don't have to spend $1,000 to buy $800 worth of gold. You can just buy $800 worth of gold and maybe pay $50, right? Get a gold coin. But here's the thing. Let's say you do that. You spend $850 to get $800 worth of gold in a coin, and now you have $150 left over to buy yourself some jewelry. Well, you're not going to buy any nice jewelry for $150. It's going to be crap. But instead, you can take the $1,000, buy a really nice piece of jewelry at gold money. You know, probably nicer than what you would get if you just spent $1,000 on at the department store. But you didn't throw your money away. You got $800 worth of gold. Right. So and this is basically tradition. People used to wear their wealth. That's what gold chains were all about. You had a chain of gold and you would break off part of the chain to pay for something. Right. You were wearing your wealth. And there are a lot of people that have no money. Right. They're poor. Right. But they have a lot of bling. Well, if you're going to buy some bling, buy some bling at gold money. So now you're not poor. You're not throwing all your money away. You actually buy a necklace or a bracelet or a ring. And, you know, 80 percent of the wealth that you spent, you still have it. Because you're wearing it, you can melt it down. And for most people, I think that they're going to have a better return on their gold jewelry they buy at Mene, than they're going to make in the stock market or the real estate market or the bond market. So, uh, you know, you've got the holiday. You've got the, coming up uh, uh, Valentine's Day, uh, and certainly, you know, if you're giving your wife right some jewelry, this is jewelry that a husband can give his wife and not be mad about it because he really didn't spend any money because you still have it. Right, You still have the gold. You're making a gold investment while you're buying your wife some nice jewelry. So you kill two birds with one stone. So again, it's Mene.com. Uh, probably not going to do a podcast tomorrow, even though we're probably going to have a massive volatility. I will be at the hotel. I don't know about Friday either. We'll see. I mean, if things are really, really crazy, I might do something in my, my hotel room. Otherwise, I might have to wait until the weekend or something like that. But again, make sure there is so much going on now. Uh, it's only going to get bigger, the volatility, the news, and the fake news, right? And as this market comes down, the the, the, the amount of the fake news is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And all the talking heads on the media is, are going to be reassuring everybody that nothing is to worry about it. Everything is fine. The fundamentals are fine. And everything is sound and don't panic. But you need to know what's actually going on. People need to know what's actually going on. And so when it hits the fan, they're going to know who to blame, right? I don't want capitalism being blamed. I don't necessarily want Trump being blamed because I know what Trump stands for. I want the blame to be on the establishment, on the Democrats and the Republicans that have been, you know, driving this, uh, you know, th- this car off this cliff that we're heading to all, all the time. This, the status quo. I mean, Trump ran to challenge that status quo. The problem is he got corrupted right into it. You know, he's now part of it. You know, he took the easy way out. Right. He, he didn't do what, what what needed to be done. But We want to blame the right people. We want to blame the Fed. We want want to make sure that people understand. And because all the things that are happening now make sense to me, right? I'm going to continuously, I think, be right about what's going to be happening. And all the mainstream media, they're going to keep being wrong. And they don't know why they're wrong because they don't understand what's going on. You know, they got fooled into thinking they were smart just because the stocks that they were buying went up, right? And there's an old expression, don't confuse brains with a bull market. And I, I have a lot of these discussions with people who, you know, got into the cryptocurrencies. Like I I, I saw on um, the Internet, uh, one time I, I I spoke about this kid who um, took his bar mitzvah money or a gift from his grandmother or whatever and put a few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks into Bitcoin and became a millionaire. And so, you know, he didn't go to college and now he thinks he's a genius or something. And, you know, I got nothing against this kid. I got nothing against uh, people winning the lottery. I don't get mad if somebody wins the lottery. I mean, I'm happy for people that do that. I'm not, I don't, I'm not envious of what other, other people's good fortunes, right? I don't root for other people to get poor, right? I don't, you know, there's some people do that, right? So I'm not ha- unhappy that this kid, uh, you know, made money on this. Although I feel bad for the people who bought the Bitcoins from him because they're going to lose a lot of money, right? Everybody who's making money in Bitcoin, somebody else is going to lose money or a bunch of people are going to lose a little bit of money. So one person can, can make a lot of money. <clears throat> but these kids think they're so smart. So I just pointed this out, you know, that, that look, you know, they're, he's on CNBC like he's some kind of financial genius. You know, I mean, a monkey could have bought Bitcoin. That doesn't mean the monkey is a genius, right? You know, he bought, some, you know, he bought Bitcoin. Uh, and so he write, does this video, you know, criticizing me. I mean, say, oh, this, this Wall Street guy, this typical Wall Street guy is criticizing me. First of all, do a little research before you call me a typical Wall Street guy. I'm anything but a typical Wall Street guy. And yeah, I'm old, but I'm not ancient. I'm 54, but I guess to an 18-year-old, yeah, I'm a dinosaur. But according to this kid, I'm this old, typical Wall Street guy who doesn't know anything, who's foolish, and I'm just mad that young people are making money. I'm not mad that young people are making money. I feel badly that a lot of young people are going to lose money, right? But I don't feel bad that somebody made money. I mean, yeah, do, do, do I wish that I could go back in time and buy some of these Bitcoins myself and they were real cheap? Sure. I mean, I'd be an idiot not to wish that, but I'm not resentful of other people. I don't feel bad because other people, you know, gambled and won. I mean, that's that's gambling. They could have lost, right? They made a bet and it worked. Now, a lot of these people are going to end up losing money anyway because they're not going to get out. Some of the people who bought cryptocurrencies really low bought more when it went up, right? And so they're going to, they're, they're going to end up losing, even though they won on some, they're, they're going to... They're gonna lose on all of it. But the point is, this kid, instead of reflecting on what I had to say and thinking about it, he just dismissed me, attacked me without even studying me. And so, you know, that's the whole idea. You know, he made money, and so now he thinks he's so smart. He's not that smart. He was lucky, right? And he made a bet that paid off. Now you could say that was it a smart bet? Yes, it was a smart bet, obviously. You bet a small amount of money with the any and he got a big payoff. But Being a smart gambler doesn't mean you're a financial genius, right? So just because this guy made one good bet that turned out right, doesn't mean that you should be listening to what he has to say now. That's my point because he's giving people advice. He's telling people what to do and people think, yeah, this guy is really smart because he made all this money. He's not really smart. He made a a good wager and and, and that's it. What's the odds that he's going to keep on making good wagers, right? Pretty damn slim, right? And, and, and so the same mentality is going on in the stock market. You got so many investors that think they're so smart because they own stocks, right? And the, the, the reality is they were too dumb to realize how bad the problems were in the economy and how overvalued those stocks were. The problem is there are a lot more dumb people. The number of dumb people way outnumbers the number of smart people. So it's the dumb people that are driving the stock market in the short run, right? That is the old saying, uh, in the short run, stocks are a voting machine, and dumb people vote. That's why we have the leaders that we do. That's the problem with democracy: dumb people outvote smart people, and the politicians know this, right? You know, when you go to when you go to Washington, what's your job? See, a lot of people think people go to Washington and they want to do good, and maybe some of them do initially, right? They go to Washington because they're you know, idealistic and they to they want to do good things, but the minute they get to Washington you know, they like it. They like the lifestyle. They like the perks, right? They want to stay there. And then they find out pretty quickly that in order to stay there, you got to get with the program. You got to start raising money. You got to do favors for the special interests. And you got to make sure that you get the votes of the idiots. You got to make sure dumb people vote for you because that's the majority of the electorate. So you got to give people something for nothing. And then you got to give your backers who are going to pay for your campaigns, you got to give them something for their support. So everybody gets corrupted that goes to Washington. I mean, you got a few exceptions, but you know, that's not the rule. And even if some people come to Washington, right? And they, they you know, they, they don't get corrupted and they, and they stay true to their beliefs. They don't stay there very long because they can't keep winning elections. Because if you're doing things that are just good for the economy and you're running against people that are doing things that get votes, well, you're not going to be there very long. And, and I think a lot of times, too, what a lot of these guys rationalize, they say, well, you know, I'm going to do this bad stuff so I can keep getting elected. Because if I lose, I'm going to lose to somebody who's even worse than me, who's going to do even worse stuff. So to prevent an even worse person from coming in here, at least I know I'm a good person. So I'm going to do these bad things to make sure that an even worse person doesn't do even worse things if I don't, if I don't do these bad things to keep, to keep my seat. So the point of that was when, you know, it's, it's dumb people that are voting that outvote the smart people. The same thing happens in the stock market in the short run. The dumb investors outvote the smart investors because there's so many more of them. And so overvalued assets go higher and higher. But in the short run, right, the stock market is a uh, voting machine. In the long run, it is a weighing machine, meaning in the long run, it's the fundamentals that matter, not what idiots are doing with their money. So in the long run, the smart people going to end up with all the money but before that happens the dumb people think they're smart because their investments went up and that's why you don't confuse brains with a bull market in a bull market you can get rich without having any brains the key is to get rich in the bear market and to get rich after the bear market because that's what takes brains and I think that I I have brains when it comes to understanding uh, the big picture the global macro the dollar Stock markets, valuations. And so I think that the people who are following my advice, uh, and we're certainly in the minority, but I think we are going to end up with all the money that everybody else loses. <music>